Today's reading is from Mark 3, 20 to 35, Jesus and Beelzebul. Then he went home, and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul. And by the rule of the demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, He has an unclean spirit, the true kindred of Jesus. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. I'm just going to take a moment to introduce you to Karen Stallard, who is our preacher for this morning. We have a a series that we've been running through this year, looking at the ways in which people are excluded from church and how we can be more intentional in including them. And we've had a series of visiting preachers addressing those various areas of exclusion. And today we're looking at the way in which the church can exclude people who suffer from poor mental health. And uh, don't take this the wrong way, Karen, but I could think of nobody better to come and preach to us this morning (laughs) on this topic than uh, my good friend, Karen. Uh, Karen, uh, tell us a little bit, you've been a minister in in North London. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing and what you do now? Um, So, well, I've I've done various things in my journey into uh, mid-life. and I was in, used to work in Tower Hamlets and spent a long time working uh, in the NHS system in psychiatric services as a kind of chaplain type role there. Um, and then I moved to North London and I've been the Minister of Union Chapel, um, which has been delightfully blessed with Johannes playing at certain times as well. So it's really lovely to hear your choir and, and to see you here today. Um, and whilst I've been at Union Chapel, I trained um, to be a psychotherapist, and that's what I'm doing now. So um, my journey, my life journey, has been one of kind of exploration of um, mental health, and uh, I'm really fascinated and interested in how communities function, how we can do each other good, and how we can do each other harm as well, and how we can support one another in the midst of life's turmoils and troubles. So, yeah, so now I'm just practicing as a psychotherapist and, yeah, 
and, and jobbing preaching. Yes, Karen, every now and then. We're so grateful <laughs> that you've come to open God's word for us this morning. So blessings on you. Thank you, Simon. And it's great to be here. So I'm going to begin um, this with a little bit of a mental health warning uh, to you this morning. And um, I'm going to be talking about um, things like mental health diagnosis, amongst other things. And there may be some of you here that have had a mental health diagnosis or have family members within the mental health services. In fact, I'm not going to say there may be. I know there will be because, you know, it's something that's all around us and in amongst us. You may have really mixed feelings about diagnosis and about treatments. And what I have to say, you may agree with, but you also may completely disagree. So let me encourage you to think openly and creatively today. If you find me challenging in any way, um, then do feel free to challenge me back, uh, preferably over a cup of tea or something after the service. Although if you're really impassioned in the here and now, then go for it. Um, it will be interesting, so we look forward to that. And um, I've learned mostly that there are no absolute rights and wrongs around these areas. There are just people's stories and experiences, and they can never be wrong. So we, we all come with our own kind of journey, don't we? Um, and it's good to talk about these things and to bring them out into the open sometimes. I've, as I said, I've worked within the field of mental health now for nearly 20 years. Um, and now I work as a psychotherapist. And I know from experience that as I speak, there may be things that resonate with you. Um, but I also know that my words might cause feelings of anxiety or judgment, as particularly as I question Western understanding of mental health diagnosis. Unfortunately, this kind of environment is not so conducive for dialogue and group discussions. Um, and I only have about 20 minutes to speak, so it's, it's difficult for me to hear how you're responding. Um, to what I'm saying. I don't want to cause offence or distress to any of you, but I'm aware that I might. So I'm going to ask you all to look after yourselves, please, for me and for you. Um, just over the next 20 minutes, I'll be mentioning things like childhood sexual abuse, and for some of you this will be a really painful thing to think about and reflect on. But I don't think I'm going to be able to talk about mental health without mentioning one of the greatest causes of adults being diagnosed with a mental illness, and that is childhood sexual trauma. I won't be going into any great detail, so try and just stay with me. But please feel free to walk out if you need to, zone out if you need to, play with your phones, lie on a pew, go to the loo, um, just remember to breathe, I think. That's uh, the most important thing. But look after yourselves, especially if I speak about stuff which triggers painful feelings for you. I'll leave you responsible for attending to yourselves this morning. And if it all feels too much, then you really don't have to stay around. I, I won't be offended if you leap up and disappear. So let me begin my reflection on this subject, mental health, inclusion and exclusion. Let's just have a recap on our Mark story. It's a good one, isn't it? 
anyone heard that story before? Might be familiar with you, yeah? Jesus and his disciples are caught up in a crowd. It was so chaotic, they couldn't even find space to sit and eat. Jesus's family heard he was in the middle of this crazy crowd and that he was probably the cause of the crowd forming. So they decided to drag him away as it seemed that Jesus had gone completely out of his mind. And even the bigwigs from Jerusalem came down to weed Jesus out. And they declared that Jesus must be possessed by Satan. Then Jesus begins to teach about the dangers of a divided kingdom and the impossibility of the kingdom standing when it's so divided. He speaks the words that have been so debated throughout Christian history and also misused ironically by people in power wanting to quash those they cannot control. He declares, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. He then disowns his family, it's quite extreme, and names the chaotic crowd to be his new mother's mothers and brothers and sisters. Now, I'm going to now give you two contemporary examples of a similar kind of experience or scenario as the story in Mark's Gospel. My first example is this. Um, You may know about this, some of you may not, but Dinesh D'Souza, famous for violating federal campaign finance laws in the US, and then receiving a full pardon from Donald Trump, recently tweets the following. This is his tweet. Children, notably Nordic white girls with braids and red cheeks were often used in Nazi propaganda. An old Grobel's technique. Looks like today's progressive left is still learning its game from an earlier left in the 1930s. Beside his tweet are two images. First is a picture of a Nazi propaganda poster of a blonde girl in pigtails. And next to it is an image of Greta Thunberg, teenage eco-warrior and campaigner. De Souza gets 22,705 likes for his tweet. That's my first example. Did anyone see that in the... Yeah, you might have caught it in the newsreel a few weeks ago. My second example is fictional, um, but I genuinely think it could be very real. So this is a fictional example. A British-born woman from Irish descent is sectioned under the Mental Health Act for attacking a neighbour who accidentally brushes past her. She is placed in a secure psychiatric unit after being diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Eventually, she is released and ends up living on the streets as homeless. This connects in with the prison uh, stuff that we heard about earlier as well. So that's my second scenario. Now, the first contemporary example may be easier for us to connect back to the gospel story. Greta Thunberg is actually a bit of a hero, isn't she? She has amazing values conviction and is far more intelligent than various world leaders who seem to want to remain oblivious to the state of our environment. She could be seen to be a little bit like Christ. She's rebellious in a good way, outspoken, brave and totally dismissive 
of the great powers of the world. To suggest that she is remotely like a Nazi is a bit like saying that Jesus was insane or possessed. It's utterly ridiculous and completely mad. And yet, people have suggested it. But my second example is probably um, a little bit more difficult to see the, the kind of connection. My second example of a violent homeless woman it might not be so easy for us to compare. So what I'm going to do is give you a little bit more behind the story of the violent woman in my second example. Let, let me tell you a little bit more about her. So she was born in the UK shortly after her Irish mother landed on British soil. She was the product of a sexual assault her mother had endured during the crossing on the Irish Sea on her immigration to the UK. The traumatised mother did not report the assault and also did not want her child and so handed her over to the authorities when she was born. The child was brought up in the care home system. She was physically and sexually abused throughout her childhood within that system. So perhaps it's easier to see the connection now. Now you have more understanding of the backstory. Jesus is called insane and possessed. Greta Thunberg is inadvertently called a Nazi. A traumatized orphan is called disordered. And this brings me to the heart of what I want us to reflect on today. I wonder whether sometimes the Western medical model of labeling people with various mental health diagnoses results in their exclusion from society rather than their recovery into stable living. Let's go back to the Jesus story. What were Jesus' family thinking? Trying to control a 30-year-old man. I mean, surely he was old enough to know what he was getting into. Surely he should just take responsibility for himself and pay the consequences for his actions, which seemed to be on that day no lunch. Jesus' family, I imagine, were wanting to control him because they felt things were out of control. Perhaps they felt that someone would get hurt. They were anxious and feeling rather risk-averse. They wanted to save him from the crowds, from himself, or indeed save their own reputations. These days, a medical diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar or various personality disorders replaces words like insane or possessed. I wonder whether our culture is behaving a little bit like Jesus' family when it tries to restrain and contain someone who is behaving in an unusual way by giving them a diagnosis, which is often a diagnosis which they have to live, for for the rest, live with for the rest of their life. Let me um, tell you a little bit about a chap called Thomas Zaz. I probably mispronounced his surname. Um, he wrote a classic book. He was a psychotherapist and psychiatrist doctor. And his classic book was entitled The Myth of Mental Illness. And this revolutionized um, the thinking about the nature of the psychiatric profession and the moral implications of its practices. By diagnosing unwanted behavior as mental illness, psychiatrists and other healthcare professionals, SARS argues, absolve individuals of responsibility for their actions and instead blame their alleged illness. SARS states that there is no such thing as madness as defined as mental illness. 
There are always explainable reasons as to why people behave the way they do. They should not let, be let off the hook for their actions because they have labelled mental illness, they have a labelled mental illness diagnosis. He also talks about their need for compassion and empathy. Now at first, I thought that SARS was being a little bit hard on the person who had committed a crime whilst out of their mind. Somebody who is psychotic and murders somebody because they genuinely think that person is going to end the world, surely should have some kind of leniency in their sentence due to mental distress. That's got to be true. But then I began to think about the values behind his statement. SARS is basically saying that every individual has a right and should never be disempowered in such a way that they no longer have responsibility for their actions, even if they're psychotic. Oppression always removes responsibility from the oppressed. You get that? Oppression always removes the responsibility from the oppressed. Why? Because it disempowers them. It stops them rising up, stops them having a voice, stops them being understood, and keeps them controlled and enslaved. Jesus is very clear about the dangers of mislabeling someone or something. And we need to be very careful when we do label. Are we doing it in order to decrease their power, remove their responsibility so they have no voice? Because if we are, then we might be being a bit like Jesus' family or the scribes. And Jesus has some very strong words about their attempts to label him. Last year, we celebrated the suffragette movement. A hundred years ago, society and the mental health professionals thought that the suffragette women were mad or labelled them with hysteria. But the real madness was how society had been thinking about women. Sometimes we need to challenge madness by doing the things which catch attention, and then we are labelled mad, when in fact we are the most sane ones. The mad ones are the ones calling others mad, or indeed disordered. So perhaps Thomas Sars's idea that mental illness is a myth might be worth considering. Perhaps he might be right. Mental illness is just a language made up by people to help label human behaviour which we lack understanding of. If we remove the labels, then we have to work harder to really try and understand what is behind a person's behaviour, to understand what they're trying to communicate. Removing the labels also allows them the independence to take responsibility for their own actions as well. The language of modern mental health excludes. It excludes understanding and excludes responsibility. And we need to be very careful as we use these languages and these labels. So let me go back to my second contemporary example, the labeling of the violent woman with borderline personality disorder. Basically, that's a way of saying she is difficult to treat. Those of you who know a little bit about mental health diagnosis know that borderline disorder has sometimes been used when the person's behavior doesn't really fit into any other category and when the person doesn't respond well to most treatments. Also, what is perhaps less known or disclosed is the fact that a vast majority of borderline diagnosis are women who have suffered complex childhood sexual abuse. My own experience has confirmed this. In my 20 years of working within the mental health sector, most borderline diagnosed patients I met had suffered childhood sexual abuse 
and most were women. Of course, this is not always the case. But there has been enough questioning about this diagnosis that there's now a movement to get rid of it out of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. It didn't happen recently, but hopefully, eventually, it will, just as being gay needed to be removed from the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. There is at least the beginnings of some recognition of how unhelpful this label is for people suffering from complex trauma. How can classing them disordered be helpful in any way? So perhaps the violent woman in my example was clearly trying to communicate something. Perhaps she wasn't being disordered. Perhaps she just didn't ever want any human touching her ever again. And in order to survive, she knew she needed to fight. Sadly, many women, like my example, just end up getting pinned down by male psychiatric nurses and injected with sedatives, each time re-traumatizing them. If anything grieves God's spirit, it is this kind of labeling and treatment of people who've been terribly abused. This saddens me greatly. But then we have this extraordinary statement from Jesus about blasphemy against the spirit. I quite like to think of this statement as being a severe warning against real madness, or what I might call unforgivable madness. What is real madness? Perhaps it is when we declare that something or someone filled with the Spirit of God is fundamentally bad, mad or disordered. Perhaps when we say Jesus is possessed, Greta is a Nazi, and our imprisoned woman is disordered, then we are committing the unforgivable sin. Perhaps Jesus' mum, Mary, committed the unforgivable sin. Perhaps Dinesh D'Souza has committed the unforgivable sin. Perhaps our psychiatric institutions are committing the unforgivable sin every time they label someone vulnerable and wounded as disordered. Perhaps we have all, at some point in our lives, called something fundamentally good, bad, in order to disempower that person or thing. Perhaps all of us have been guilty of committing the unforgivable eternal sin. Perhaps none of us can be let off the hook with that one. You can disagree with me. But I won't leave you there. I wonder whether it's so bad to have committed the eternal sin. Is it possible to be able to live a happy life even though we have committed the eternal sin? I also wonder if complete forgiveness may be a little overrated. And I think the demand Christians place on having to forgive and be forgiven for absolutely everything is unethical and actually unchristlike. There are some things which happen in this world to good people because the world has gone mad, and those atrocities should never be forgiven or forgotten. We need eternal memories of some things. We need to feel the pain of our worst mistakes and know that we were very, very wrong to call something very good, very bad. There are some things I really shouldn't be forgiven for because they are things that I never want to get away with ever doing again. As a young Christian, I labelled gay men as sinful and bad. I was repulsed by the idea of two women being together and couldn't even utter the word lesbian. It filled me with such shame. I believe that I grieved God's spirit with my homophobia. I was fundamentally wrong to call my brothers and sisters in Christ sinful and bad, ill, sick and mad. I wounded the very heart of God and also divided myself against myself. I committed an unforgivable sin. 
Now, as a liberated lesbian, integrated again with my split-off, rejected self, I carry this unforgivable sin as a reminder to try and never judge again someone I do not understand or who makes me feel uncomfortable for whatever reason. It is my thorn in my flesh and makes me a good therapist. I do not want or need to be forgiven for it. So the worst thing we can do is call something or someone who is inherently good evil. It's the most damaging and destructive thing we can do, especially if we're saying this to a child. But I suspect we have all done it in moments of madness and fear. But let me just finish on a slightly more positive note, because you're probably thinking, gosh, that's a bit much. I I know you're wondering about how I'm going to tackle the issue of the fact that now I have declared that we have all committed the unforgivable sin. Are we all doomed? Well, we don't. I mean, after that music this morning, I don't think we're doomed. It's so beautiful. Of course not. Jesus did not die for the sins which can be forgiven. And I mean, that would be a complete waste of time, wouldn't it? Energy and forgetting, not forgetting, a lot of pain. Jesus died in order that the unforgivable madness of 